Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome. Uh, very lucky to have a very prestigious guest, uh, James Courier, uh, co-founder uh, of, of NFX, and, which is a, a network effects-driven venture capital firm. James, w- uh, welcome to, uh, to On Deck Angels. Thanks. Thanks so much. Super fun. So I'm curious to start this interview by asking you, and this can also be by way of introduction to people who don't know your story. Basically, how did you sort of figure out your sort of, um, you know, investor firm fit or, or in terms of your perfect career fit? You, you'd been a longtime operator. Uh, you'd worked in venture before um, at, at Battery, I, I believe it was. Yep. Yep. And so how did you f- f- figure out that NFX, that starting a firm and then this type of firm was the perfect uh, sort of fit for you relative to you could have started a company again. You could have you yeah. know, joined a firm. You could have done yeah. a number of things. Yeah. So I, I graduated from Princeton and there was a, a company that was advertising that they had a job slot in venture capital. I don't know what the hell that was, but I knew entrepreneurship sounded interesting. And then they decided not to hire anybody that year. And so I tracked them down. It was a company called Summit Partners. And back back in the 90s, they were hot. And they ended up not having a job. They didn't hire anyone that year. So I went off and did other things. But then later on, I came back to it. About two and a half years later, I came back. Uh, they made me a job offer. I turned them down, moved to Asia. Uh, and then I came back and uh, said, hey, two years later. And I said, hey, guys, you want to give me a job? And they said, screw off. You don't say no to some of partners. You know, no one ever gets those job offers. You shouldn't, you shouldn't turn that down. So I went to Battery. And Battery gave me a job as an associate. And I was smiling and dialing, trying to sell Battery's money. Battery was copying Summit and TA's model of smiling and dialing. And I learned a ton. And I owe a ton to the Battery guys, wonderful people. I didn't enjoy myself very much at Battery. It was really a hard environment for me. It wasn't super creative. It was more money management rather than venture capital. But they give some of the highest and most consistent returns in the industry. I've asked limited partners recently, like who gives the highest and most consistent return? And a lot of people say battery. So you should know that their model works like crazy. It's just not that much fun to, to, to work there for me. Okay. And so I got that experience working for three years of battery. And while there said, we should be using software to run these firms. Why can't founders find out about all the different investors? And why can't the investors just have the founders sort of, you know, fill something out so they can see which ones are going to fit with them? And that was back in 94, 97. And still nothing was happening. So I went off and, you know, ran companies for 15, 17 years, raised money for four venture-backed companies, uh, moved to the Bay Area, of course, in 2000, and then started angel investing after I sold my first company. And, you know, first things were things like Flickr and Goodreads and, you know, uh, you know, Rap Leaf and companies like that that became Live Ramp and all that sort of thing. So that, that DoorDash and Patreon, things ended up doing pretty well. But because I hadn't enjoyed Battery, I thought, I don't want to be an investor because I thought that's what being an investor meant. And then as I started angel investing and I started hanging out with more and more investors like Sargur over at CRV or Sarah Tavel, you know, who was at Bessemer at the time. And then she was at Greylock and now she's at Benjamin. You realize, no, there's actually a different way of doing it. You don't have to be call and smile and dial and grind and only invest when you can't not invest. That's kind of Battery's approach, which is why they have such good returns. It's very sort of, um, you know, only invest when, when you've gone through the whole list and there's really no reason to not invest. All the risks are gone, right? So they have very high returns because of that. But companies like Benchmark, they try to see the future. Sequoia tries to see the future. You can, you can actually be involved in the creation of the future if you invest in that way. And of course, often those companies give even higher returns than Battery. So once I realized that, I kind of softened on the idea of going back into venture and then started redreaming my dreams from the 90s about how you'd use software and how you would you know, build a different tenor of a firm. Uh, and so that's why we ended up uh, building NFX after we tried an incubator. So Stan Chodnovsky and I, who's now running Messenger, he and I started these four venture, venture-backed companies together. And we started an incubator called Uga Labs. And that turns out not to be a really good business model because you just end up running each of the companies that you start. It's not like venture capital. We have a portfolio with an incubator. You're basically just finding your next CEO job is basically what's going on. And so after we did that for four years and realized, oh, that's not a real business, 
we said, let's go do something that's more scalable that has network effects. And we went back into investing. And then that's when Zuck called and Stan went over to Facebook. And then I went on with Gigi and Pete and now Morgan Beller to do NFX. That's how I got back into it. And so we, I invested in about 50 angel investments prior to starting NFX. Then we did 80 accelerator companies at NFX. And then we stopped at the accelerator about three years ago. And now we're a fund. Think of us like a first round where we invest one to three million for 15 to 20% of a company or seed investors. Yeah. And just the point on incubators, do you think that Atomic has really figured something out or are, are you bearish on, on, on incubators for, for the reason you, you just mentioned in, in general? Like if, if your good friend comes to you and says, hey, I'm going to start an incubator, are you like, ah, eh, yeah, how do you think about it? Yeah, I've got a whole 45 minute thing I take people through about every month because everyone about every month, somebody great comes to me and says, I want to <laughs> do an incubator. I'm like, of course you do. Everyone does. <laughs> Would that be ideal? You get to do four or five at a time and you get a portfolio, but you get to build. It's, you know, for those of us who are both CEOs and investors, like that feels like the ideal lifestyle. And we haven't seen it work very well. Yeah. I think, I think Atomic's got one or two companies are doing really well. They were kind of clones of other companies. They're more spreadsheety type businesses. This is what Rocket Internet did in, in, in Germany. That's probably the best approach to it. Uh, if you're going to take an approach to it. But I think uh, in the end, I think Atomic is trying an accelerator. Atomic is trying venture investing. And yeah. anyway, I, it's eventually what's going to happen is somebody's going to get lucky twice or three times. And then someone's going to say, see, it works. And be like, yeah, no, actually, if you flip a coin 10 times, 100 times, one of the times you're going to get 10 heads in a row. Yeah, so. Totally. Take take us through the first few years of NFX and the different. You just sort of mentioned that sort of you've evolved different phases. What one user sort of walk us through the thinking as um, as those phases emerged? Uh, Sheila and a couple others asked, uh, you know, what, why the transition from accelerator to seed? How did you sort of walk us through the path of how you figured out the model that works for you? Yeah, I think that you know we wanted to be at the earliest stages of these companies, and when you do an accelerator. The founders are coming to you with this idea and the mindset that they're there to learn and expand and grow. And that mindset pays huge dividends for the founders because they just absorb much more and they get more done in a short amount of time. With venture capital, the downside is that people come to you and they they spend so many hours pretending to the investors that they're great, so you should invest. I'm all good. I'm perfect, so you should invest that they start to need to believe that they start to put layers and layers of sort of emotional protection over themselves. And they have to kind of believe it in order to get up every day and pitch that six times a day until they raise their money. And so often once you put a venture investment in, there's a, there's, there's not as much absorption. There's not as much speed in, in the founders. And there's a lot of pretend. There's a question as to whether you should trust your investors and just, you know, keep the board thinking that things are going great because they're going to be the gateway to your next fundraise. And, it's just not as authentic as the accelerator model. So that's where we started. We started with the accelerator model because it'd be more authentic. And then what we realized is that an accelerator model needs to be really scaled up in order for it to sort of do what we wanted it to do. So we either needed to invest in smaller number of companies and get larger percentages of equity, like 15 or 20%, or we should scale it up to hundred companies per class. And in the end, we decided to scale it down. So instead of doing 80 investment, or instead of doing 60 investments a year, we were, excuse me, 30 investments a year, we'd do like 15. But we would just take twice the equity and sort of make it work that way and then work more closely with companies that are later stage and a little closer to product market fit. Um, and that gave us the ability to have time to go off and build software, build content, to do a bunch of other stuff we wanted to do in terms of building out the ecosystem. So for me, it was more a choice about what's the impact I'm going to make, right? Because none of us at NFX take salaries because we're, we're sort of post that. And we take all the carry and we put it into software and content and supporting the companies and into the platform. And that's really what gives us meaning because we really want to affect the whole ecosystem, right? But by changing how the ecosystem works uh, and what the ecosystem knows, that would just be the most fun way to spend the next 20 years. And so that was, that was mostly the decision about why to scale down because it gave us time to then go and do these other aspects of the business that we thought could be interesting. Yeah. And, and you mentioned you, you've had a you know software approach to to venture, and I know you guys have experimented in a lot of different you know places and in ways we, we look up to a lot at Village. What have you learned about you know what works and what doesn't work in terms of where sort of a product approach or, or software can have a big uh, big difference in, in the venture business? Yeah, I think that software is going to make the, the idea that the AI is going to drive your car 
right now that Uber is selling their self-driving unit, I think what we've been saying for years is coming true, which is no guys, self-driving car is like a long way off, you know, because it's going to kill people. And it's the same thing with having software try to make your decisions for investing. Like that's just not a good idea. That's just, it's just way too far off. In fact, software should be used for workflow, not for decision-making. And so the idea of a lot of firms that are in the series A and series B trying to build software to help them make decisions. I think that's misguided. I think that this is a human business. I think this is, this is about the art artistic thing that a founder is building in partnership with their investors. And if you lose that soul, you have no chance of building the types of giant companies that are most interesting to build. So I think if you're making like 300 investments a year, yeah, you could have software help you with that. But I, I, I would encourage everyone not to think of software as being helpful to making any sorts of decisions. It's, um, it's really just sort of more workflow type um, data collecting, you know, stuff. Yeah. Uh, How have you thought about sort of the, as you scale your firm, the different models by which you could, you, you could go in terms of fund size, different, different types of funds, right? There's sort of thrive, you know, raised a huge fund, did growth, did it all in one. And Dreesen has like, you know, different funds, you know, sector specific funds, uh, you know, Benchmark has their sort of bread and butter. First round has their bread and butter. USV, their bread and butter. How, how have you sort of figured out of like, you know, where, where do you, you as NFX fit within the fund size and sort of structure? Yeah, I think I think that a lot of people like to talk about, well, it's 2021. Therefore, this is cooler. That's cooler. This is how it's changing. And there's a lot of prognostication, which is just mostly bullshit. I think the thing that is you just have to figure out who are you and what type of investments are you best suited to make, right? If you're a builder then you're going to want to go early. You will not make as money as if you go to series B, right? Or a hedge fund. Look, the hedge fund guys make so much more money than anybody in venture. It's a joke. So if you're just interested in money, go into being a hedge fund business, like move to New York, go do it, right? That's where all the money's made. And then maybe in the PE shops, right? I got friends flying around in jets who started PE firms 15 years ago. Like jets, three jets, five jets. They make so much more money than any of us. Um, I mean, I mean, what's all the money raised in venture capital? Like 24 billion, 40 billion. It's like, it's like, that's one, that's like one hedge fund. Like, so don't even kid yourself. Like you're playing in the minor leagues. You enjoy it. Like if, if you don't, if you want to do it for money, don't do this. Um, and so just figure out what your personality type is and what lights you up. And there are some people who are really suited for series B investing, you know, and you meet them and you know it right away there. That's a series B person. You know, and then you, you meet these people and you're like, you know, those people, they're like pre-seed, you know, and that's their personality. And so find where you are and just go there. You're going to do fine in any market. You're going to do fine no matter A is up or seed or seed is the new A, you know. <laughs> you know, look, when like I tell my boys, you know, in terms of investing, it's much simpler than everybody pretends. You go to the airport bookstore, there's like 20 you know, mutual fund magazines and they're this thick and they're all telling you about how to pick the best meat. It's all bullshit. So it's just buy the index funds, fucking <laughs> 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 leave it there. Right. And uh, no load mutual fund. And, and that's what they teach you at Harvard business school. Once you're inside buying the iron curtain, they're like, do not invest in any mutual funds. It's all bullshit. And it's the same thing with all this prognostication about this is better. Or that's better. It's no better. It's just who you are. You're going to outperform in some place that fits your personality. Yeah. Speaking of prognostication in, in 2021, let's talk about uh, COVID and what this means for for company building and investing in a, in a post COVID world. Because I know you're, you're starting to think about you, you're you're writing about it. I'm sure you've been you've been thinking about it for a long time. You, yeah. You've been bullish on San Francisco and and being you know in person uh, and, and Israel as well. What what does this mean uh, in a post COVID yeah. world? What, what are your reflections? So look. The popularity right now of dissing on San Francisco, the popularity now of talking about remote is like a 10, right? You can't say anything other than, oh, yeah, it's all changing. It's all going to be different going forward. I would like to, you know, suggest a more muted view of that enthusiasm for remote everything all the time, everywhere, whatever. There are going to be places where remote works great. When you've got a giant company and the culture is set and the product market fit is there and everyone is just kind of, doing the same thing every day, like the creativity goes down and this sort of repeat activity goes up. Those companies are going to be great for remote because people can be trained to do a thing and they do it over and over again. That's great. Working on a a division and a division of a department of a 
of a vertical within a company and you're working on a little widget of a widget, that's great. Remote's great for that. But if you're trying to cook up something that's creative, you're trying to cook up something that's fast, if you're trying to cook up something, that's on the other end of the spectrum. And the human brain is structured in a way that the bandwidth is much higher in person, such that at that stage, with four people, three people, 12 people, 28 people, the in-person is going to still make a huge difference. And yes, COVID has shown that we can do more remote than we thought. That's fantastic. That won't change. But in terms of where I expect the great companies to come from, they're still going to come from the cities with a good tech infrastructure. And that's San Francisco, that's New York, that's Seattle maybe, and a few other, you know, obviously Tel Aviv, a little bit of London, and mostly Beijing, right? But uh, they put the banks in New York in what, what was it? 2050 or 2000, or what was it? Uh, 1750, 1770. It's still there, right? They put the movies in LA and in the seventies, there's all these articles, LA's dead. It's all moving to New York. It's all moving to New York. And people say, what's the evidence? They said, oh, it's Woody Allen. Well, what other evidence? Woody Allen. And what else? Well, Woody Allen, like this was the thing in the late seventies, early eighties. If you look back and look at the articles, LA was dead. And LA still is where all the screenplays are written and still where all the money moves. And yeah, you've got some 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 filming that goes on in, in near Atlanta or New Zealand or whatever, but 90% of the revenue flows through LA in, in that industry. There's network effects to these industries. And I expect the network effects aren't going to be disrupted. You know, you know, 10,000 years of city centers being scalable, mathematically provable, superior engines is not going to be upended by Zoom. Yeah. It's possible. It's possible. Anything's possible. It just doesn't seem likely that the math will be completely reversed. We're still going to see clustering in major cities. That's, that's, that's my thought is that I'm all for remote. I'm all for hiring really specialized technical people far away that you can't get unless you do that remote. And now that we culturally learning how to handle remote better. Yeah, that'll be helpful. But how many companies are really dependent on four or five highly specialized technical people? that you can't find in the Bay Area, that you can't find in Tel Aviv. Not that many, some, but not that many. Probably not your startup. Splash some cold water on the, uh, uh, on all, uh, the, uh, the hype. I, I want to go through a few sort of sectors and just sort of get your read on where we're at right now, what, what you're seeing, or, or maybe how it's even evolved. I mean, uh, maybe starting with, with consumer and, and maybe consumer social, but specifically you, you famously were, were a believer in Twitter early. You, you've written about how you 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 sent it to Bill Gurley and said you have to invest, and and he didn't then, but he did later. Uh, you you also invested in in Meerkat, uh, you know, with Life on Air before, and then became House Party. How are you thinking about sort of where we are at in in consumer social today? And if you were to make an investment in in the space in the next you know year or, or, or soon, where what might it look like, or what, what are you even looking for in something that would pique pique your interest? Yeah, it's tough. It's a tough one. I feel like COVID has opened up some new emotional and social needs that people have filled. I mean, Zoom largely was the beneficiary of it. Where was Google Hangouts? I don't know, but they missed it, right? Those social needs were picked up by the existing players mostly. I'm not sure if we've gotten any big new networks that have been formed during COVID. We'll see what emerges out of it. Look, the challenge with social mobile or social anything is that there's only a certain amount of reservoir of emotional and psychological needs that people have. And that's what these things are serving. They're not serving a utility. Like I need to do better finance on my B2B transaction. Like you can just go build a company to do that because that isn't being done today. And, and someone needs to do it. But in terms of our emotional and social needs, like they're largely being taken care of, not great. Uh, and so it's hard to squeeze in to give human beings enough reason to build a whole nother graph. So that's been our challenge is to, is to find new reasons for that to take place. And first thing I would be looking for is someone who's extraordinary. Like this guy, Ben Rubin, he's just, you know, when I went to Israel, I met with 45 companies and that was the only company I invested in. And then I helped him move back to San Francisco and, you know, was very tightly intertwined with the development of Meerkat. And he's just a very special person. And it takes that kind of a talent to do it at this point, because it is on the end of the spectrum toward entertainment. Like it's right next to Hollywood. Like, Jerry Seinfeld just has something about him, right? George Lucas, Steven Spielberg just has something about them. You need those people in order to make media work because the nuance is so high. Social mobile, social media is near that on the spectrum. Right? It's not enterprise sales software. 
It's the other end of the spectrum. And so you need very specialized types of people who are both very analytical from a math perspective, as well as really good with language, really good with emotion and with psychology. And that type of person, there's not a lot of those people. There's just a few people who have the brain with both of it happening in the same brain. So that's the first thing I look for. The second thing I look for is just some sort of really blunt hook. Like I loved the story of Bumble. He's like, it's Tinder, but I'm a girl and it's for girls. I get it. Like super blunt, you know, and then she sells it for whatever, one and a half billion or whatever, like two years later. It's like something super blunt that it makes enough sense for people to build a new graph. Uh, so those are some of the things I'd be looking for. Is, are, are you a believer in sort of the um, seven si- deadly sins that you have to, every social network has to solve one of, you know, speak for one of those sins or how do you think about user uh, behavior? In way? I don't, I, I, I bet if I analyzed it, I would probably agree with it, but I don't look at the world that way. No. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, in the same way that I don't see business plans. And so, some people say, look, in your business plan, you have to say what the problem is. <laughs> I'm like, no, you don't. You could just say the world would be amazing if we did this. Yeah. Like what, what, what problem was Twitter solving? What problem was Facebook solving? Like nothing. It was just, they were saying it was going to be amazing if we get to, you know, see everybody's photo. Yeah. If in, in five years or some period of time, LinkedIn is like meaningfully disrupted. I know we talked about it back and forth. I was trying to crack that nut. It's a point. Like what, what could that look like? Ah, that's, that's Mount Everest. LinkedIn is Mount Everest. I, they have been much less disrupted than Facebook. I mean, th- their network effect is so solid for various interlinking reasons of both psychology and the network effects and and uh, the fact that it's related to money making and stuff like that. It's, I don't think LinkedIn will be disrupted. I think other things will be born around work that don't look like LinkedIn at all. But I, I don't know what they are. I'm, I'm waiting to see what they are. But um, I, I don't Anytime, like I invested in six companies that were trying to disrupt uh, LinkedIn over the course of, I don't know, 15 years, all of them failed. <laughs> so I'm at the point where I'm just like, look, if you think you're going to disrupt LinkedIn, I can guarantee you're not. If you think you're <laughs> going to build this other cool thing while LinkedIn continues to do the LinkedIn thing, then I, I might be on board. I, I thought Trellis was a co- co- cool approach. Yeah, that could have been okay. Didn't happen. Yeah. Do, uh, do you see any opportunities or holes in social where the same social graph could be implemented in a 10 X better way or are new graphs most important? So if you want to grab an old graph, you have to be so stealthy and so deceptive to the owner of that graph that they will let you do it. And we haven't seen any good examples of that. Rick Marini tried to disrupt LinkedIn by building the next LinkedIn on top of Facebook's graph. Yeah. And, um, you know, they saw it coming or cube dual tried to build it on LinkedIn's graph. They stopped them. Or, you know, even, even Google has implemented a lot of restrictions last year, year and a half ago on how you could use the Gmail graph. It's like, it's hard to build your graph on someone else's graph. You've got to, I think you need to build a new graph. Yeah. I think you need to build a new graph because unless you can build a graph so violent, so violently and so quickly and then get off it, both things have to happen. I, I don't. I think it's hard to to make that transition. The, the platforms are no longer stupid, you know. They're 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 run by smart young paranoid people. And I remember now now stands at Facebook. Like he and I would always sit there. Why doesn't Facebook just stop them? Or why doesn't Google just stop us from doing what we're doing? <laughs> like we're you know we're making these big companies on their backs and they're not doing anything. This is great. <laughs> if it were me there, then I wouldn't let us do this. Yeah. And then and then of course now he's there. So. At one point, I believe Tickle was a dating site. Is that, is that correct? Tickle had a Tickle matchmaking area to it, yeah. It started out as a testing site and then moved, added matchmaking, then added social networking. And could, uh, you mentioned the, the hookup bubble. Could you see yourself da- uh, investing in a dating company in the next year or two, or do you think unlikely? It's pretty unlikely, but I see probably two a month, <laughs> you know? Uh, people always approach me with the matchmaking sites because I used to run one and they need to get viral and they need to have retention and conversion and all the stuff that needs to happen. It's, you know, I had a good friend, Sam Yegan, who started OkCupid and worked on that for eight and a half years. And and there's very few product people as talented as Sam. You know, he's in, he's in the top 20 or 30 in the, in the world. And he worked on that for eight and a half years and sold it for, I think, 40 million bucks. It's like, that's cool. But what, you know, it's tough, yeah. man. It's a tough, tough space. 
and it's tough because just the businesses, like once you, you make a match, you lose the customer. Basically. Yeah. There's so much churn. There's so much competition. Uh, the CAC is high. The retention's low. You know, Tinder hopped on the, on the mobile bandwagon 10 years ago. And then Bumble hopped on the t- Tinder bandwagon, which was great. Glad to see that. Plenty of fish jumped on that. This is a totally free thing. This is back in 2002 or three. There just haven't been that many big successes. And everyone wants to do it because it's fun. You know, it's like travel companies or loyalty for bars. You know, it's like, yeah, that would be fun. Yeah. yeah. I have to be really suspicious of founders who want to do all these companies because there's, there's just too much fun. And, and uh, in the audience, you had a question on this topic? Mike Maples had written this article, I think, like much earlier in the pandemic year about maybe maybe it was even before about sort of backcasting and inflection points. And I know he's part of the NFX uh, network to some degree. And I kind of wanted to get an understanding of like how you build culture at NFX to like think about inflections. I, I like to do this, look at different industries and look at what's trending within them and seeing what I could bring to different industries from from other ones. So I'm just curious how you build that into your culture there and, and how you think about it. It's a great. So you're, you're asking how at NFX do we talk amongst ourselves and build a culture where we can productively discuss seeing the future a little bit so that we can have a prepared mind for the companies we could invest in when there's an inflection point? Is that? Yeah. Yeah. Or how do you maybe um, spur people to be watching for inflection points and how do you think about, you know, building that in? Yeah. How, how do we train the CEOs or how do we train ourselves as investors? Yourselves. Yeah. Yourselves as investors. Yeah. It's a, it's a great question. So there are some firms that do so much thinking that they kind of come up with their own theses. They, they might start companies. They might always be looking for companies. They'll do a, a survey. Battery, Bessemer, USV. Um, these companies look for the inflections. They look for the theses that they want to follow. And that's a great way to go. There are other firms like NFX for the last three years where we are just responding to the inbound. Got it. The door is swinging in so much that every day is just a treadmill to try to respond appropriately to great founders who want to talk with us. And I think the same thing would be true for the other firms, but they just have a culture of spending more time thinking it through and coming up with their own theses. Versus us, where we look at a company, we look at a a team, and then we see what theses are around it and whether we can attach good theses to it in that moment when we found the team. And one's a little more academic and one's just a little more sort of, you know, off the cuff. Right. And so in in what I'm hearing, I'll just play it back, is like in this case, you know, because you've built a culture externally where, you know, founders who are like maybe – a lot more innovative know that they would have an ear know that, that they would have an ear at NFX. Yeah. You know, you, you would just say you collect data points because all of your door is open because you're sort of listening for those trends. Yeah, that's right. That's right. We just meet with so many more companies than these series A firms who have the staff. So look, once you get to be a series A firm and you got a 600, 800 billion dollar fund, then you have enough management fee to hire enough people so that you have enough people's hours actually do the thinking in advance with us because we've only got four partners um, and we're doing seed and we're doing it across. So we're doing biotech, we're doing security, we're doing marketplace, we're consumer. We're we're, because we're across so many things and we're at seed. That means that there's tens of hundreds of thousands of companies that could come in our door. And so we're just chasing after that, that flow and then forming the thesis as we go. Right. And that kind of goes back to your point in the beginning, right? Which is like, where do you thrive as people? You want to be closer to which, um, which, which part, right? Right. Right. And, you know, look, I think, and both of them obviously work. Both approaches absolutely can work, right? USB, Bessemer, battery, very, very successful. And then other companies that just take the best idea that comes in the door, like Benchmark or, or us can be extremely successful as well. So either That's way, it, it depends on what, what, how you like to roll. Right. That's helpful. Thank you. Yeah. Also, James, I want to talk about marketplaces. Do you think most, you know, consumer marketplaces are, are pretty saturated right now? Or, or are you looking mo- mostly B2B or w- where are we right now in terms of marketplaces? You obviously, you know, have invested and written about marketplaces for, for a very long time now. Yeah. How do you think about this? 
No, I don't. I think that there's always going to be new marketplaces. I think there's a, there's always new needs. There's always a new take. Like you could you could slice eBay up in six different ways today and create new marketplaces if you were talented enough. Marketplaces are just really diff- difficult businesses to run. They're difficult planes to fly, and you just have to you have to you know be really good and you have to be willing to be patient. You know, it takes four years before it really starts to roll in many cases, and then it's really really rolling by year seven, and then by year twelve or I mean, like Poshmark, for instance, is going to go public finally, you know, nine or 10 years in and they've killed it and they're nine or 10 years in, you know, and it was not an easy road. The first six years was not an easy road. So I, I think there's plenty more to do. Plenty, plenty more on, on, the, on the B2C marketplaces side. Are, are there ones that you've done in the last, you know, year or two, just as an example of like how you evaluate, because I'm sure you've said no to, you know, hundreds, how you evaluate them or, or what criteria is most important in terms of getting you to a, to a yes? You've got to have figured out a scalable way to cost effectively get the side of the marketplace that's hard to get. You know, in most marketplaces, if, if you get the supply, the demand will show up. Or if you get the demand, the supply will show up. Not all of them, but most of them. And so in those cases, you've got to figure out which side is harder. And when I talk to a founder who says, we're, we're killing it on the supply side, I'm like, but guy. It's a demand side marketplace, man. I don't care about the supply side. You shouldn't either. The fact that you haven't figured out that you shouldn't care about it tells me that you don't understand your business yet. And when you come back to me and say, okay, I figured out supply. It doesn't matter. What matters is this. And this is how we're trying to crack it. I'm like, oh, now you're backable because at least you're focused on the, the right problem. Even though you haven't fixed it yet, you at least are thinking about it properly. So that's that's the main thing with the, with the marketplaces is which side is harder. And then is there a an inexpensive way to scale it up? And, you know, sometimes it could be Facebook. Facebook is a very scalable platform or Google. Those can be scalable channels. They just have to be cost effective. And it's really hard to make them cost effective these days. One other space that you've thought a lot about and written about recently as part of your broader tra- travel uh, network effects piece is is around universities and, and, and education more broadly. One, maybe you can define, uh, you know, travel network effects. And then I'm curious to just get your take on you know, if you were going to compete, try to disrupt higher education or, or create a competitor, what approach you might look for either in creating or, or investing in one? Yeah, um, sure. So the tribal network effects that we've just written about, sort of the 15th network effect uh, on the map, is basically the idea that we're all familiar with from school, which is once you've attached your identity to a group of people, when that group does well or that, that word, that, that brand does well, you do well. Right. So every time, so I went to Princeton. So every time someone says, well, Princeton founder, you know, you've just raised 10 million. You're like, yeah, all right. You know, that means that there's some little bit of benefit for me that that person, because I've attached my identity to that thing. Like, like I'm, I'm helping Facebook with their network effect because I'm on Facebook, let's say. But if someone says Facebook sucks, I'm like, yeah, it does suck. You know, I don't defend it, you know, but once you've created a tribal network effect and someone says, well, Princeton sucks. I'm like, no, it doesn't. I'll defend it. And so you actually defend the integrity of the value of the network because that value accrues to you in a way that is more social. It's not on wires and in, and in the chips. It's, it's, it's more social. It's in the language. It's in, it's in how we all interact with each other. And so getting that tribal network effect going is, is very valuable for the people in the tribe. And, you know, uh, it's hard to do, honestly. Uh, and so if you were trying to take on education, you would just figure out, uh, something that wouldn't require a building and all that expense uh, to create a travel network effect and to get people actually sharing information. And I think you're doing a great job of that, Eric. You're, you know, you've, you've studied this well enough and that's what you're doing with On Deck. I think it's, um, I think it's, it's spot on. Thank you. I, I'm curious how you think about your network effects approach as you think about, you know, different verticals that you've invested in that maybe you got up to speed on quickly. Like, like you guys are, are, have gone deep on bio. How do you recommend other generalist investors here sort of getting up to speed on, on new categories and then sort of how have you applied your unique investor approach? Yeah, to it? It, takes, it takes somewhere between, you know, four to 24 months to get up to speed on a new category. And bio, it takes probably eight to 10 years. Healthcare takes about six to eight years. So I would not encourage people who are not healthcare people to try to take on healthcare, honestly, because I did that. And it took me about eight, eight or 10 years to know enough to be dangerous in healthcare. You know, when I started a company, I raised $68 million for GIF from Venrock and from Johnson & Johnson and GE and all the people in the healthcare industry. 
and uh, it was a it was a long hard road, and a lot of mistakes and a lot of learning. And the same thing with bio. Like we've gotten into bio because we know that bio is like the next thing, right? Like the last 25 years, because the internet has been great for software and software will continue to be better than other types of businesses for sure. But it's not going to be as good as it was probably because we're just, you know, it's like railroads, right? It was, it was good to build a railroad between 1830 and 1870. But if you're building a railroad in 1880, it's like, eh, you know, steel's expensive. People have unionized. You're doing a small spur out of Atlanta. You know, there's just not a lot left. The juice is kind of gone. And at some point that will happen with software. It's not, not soon, but it'll, it'll start to, to happen. Whereas biotech, we're just getting going with, with, with synthetic biology and computational biology. I don't know if you just saw the news this morning, uh, Google Fold or whatever, you know, it's unbelievable like what, what the AI is able to do around that. So, but none of us in the firm are bio experts. We don't have PhDs in biotech. So we have leveraged uh, people outside the firm uh, so far to help us with those investments and done so very successfully. And, but it wasn't that we became experts. We literally depended on other people. And so I would, I would suggest that for anybody looking to get into sectors like, like video gaming. If you haven't been in video gaming for four or five years, it's a really hard sector to invest in. I don't know what percentage of our total investments are in gaming, but it's like 18% of our total fund. It's like Gigi and I both ran gaming companies and for like years and years and years. And so it just takes years of going, oh, yeah, I tried that and that sucked. <laughs> I tried that and that sucked too. You know, because most things break, most things don't work. And so finding the things that are more likely to work, you know, it takes a while. Totally. Um, and, and I would say this, I think that you know, the question is actually more powerful than you might imagine, because if you look at great investors, it's not typical that they just invest in a lot of random ideas. Typically, they've chosen a sector that's really good for the next 10 years, like people who picked SaaS in 2001 or 2000, right? And invested in Salesforce and then in all the other SaaS companies afterwards, like Emergence, right? Like Emergence picked SaaS 16 years ago and they've done great. And they just stick to it because it's big enough and it's focused enough and they know what they're looking at. Every person who comes in that front door, they know exactly what they're looking at. They know the metrics. They... So I would, I would uh, encourage people to think really carefully about which sector you focus on. Yeah. That's a nice segue into Lucas's question. L- Lucas, can you uh, can you hop on? Yeah, I guess basically my, my question was, uh, hey, James, uh, my, my question was, uh, given how crowded the industry has gotten compared to a few years ago, how do you think about the market for generalist investors today? You know, what do the next year, five, the next five years look like, in your opinion? I guess a tweet I saw that I think about a lot is, you know, the, the funds that get started thinking that the market today is going to look like the market for like from 2014 to 2019 are really going to struggle. How, how do you think about that? Totally. I think, look, the, the big picture is that all investment classes are losing alpha. The bond market, stock market, even the hedge funds, they're like the alpha, the profits of the hedge funds are coming down as more and more competition comes in and these markets become more and more efficient. And the place where it is going to come last is to the early stage venture capital market because it's so nascent and it's so random, right? It's so random as to what ends up being big. And so you're seeing more and more money chase alpha, if you will, by coming into our area. And you're seeing companies that you invest in seven post and then four months later, they raise at 50 post. Nothing's changed except that now the money sees them and the money wants them. Uh, and that's going to really suppress returns in our sector. However, all that has to happen is that our sector needs to give better returns than all the other sectors, and the money will continue to flow into the sector until it evens out. And that's what's happening. And so I think it's going to get more competitive. I think the valuations, uh, excuse me, the returns are going to drop. I also think that the returns for the best funds are going to go up because it's largely a signaling game. And the best founders want to signal with the best investors. And so you're going to get this haves and have nots. And then, so if you're an angel investor, I would just do the SV model, SV angel model, which is just invest in hundreds of them and then get a few that go a thousand extra money and then you're good to go. Um, I I guess uh, as a quick follow-up to that, um, to what extent do you let like general macro factors play into your fund strategy and, and how you how you think about your place uh, in the seed market? You know, do, do you not at all or? Not at all. 
Not at all. I know what my personality is, and I know Pete's personality and Gigi's personality. We're born to do a certain thing. And if it's like a bad time to be a seed investor for the next 10 years, we'll still outperform all the other seed funds, so I don't care. We'll still get to keep doing it. We'll still make an impact. We'll still produce software. We'll still produce content. We'll still educate. We'll still have fun. We'll, you know, we'll still make a difference. And we all are going to have too much money anyway. Everyone on this call is going to have too much money anyway, right? I mean, all you're struggling for is like your own self-respect at this point. You're not struggling for money, right? I mean, you can buy food, you can get a car, you can get a back rub once a month for a hundred, hundred bucks. Like you're, you're, I mean, the difference between you and a billionaire is like negligible from a lifestyle perspective, a health perspective, an access perspective, an intellectual perspective, you know, the, the, the access to joy, the access to love, the access to all the things that are meaningful. The difference between you and a billionaire is negligible already. So now you're just struggling for your ego. So if you can get that in check, then you just go have some fun, make an impact and make great things happen. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't overthink it. I would, I would learn who you are, learn who you like to hang out with, and the rest of it will take care of itself. Preach. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, yeah. don't, over, don't overthink it. There, you know, there's no best place to be. You're already, already lucky yeah. to have the health, to be an American, to have access to this community. To, you're, you're already among the, the point one, not even the one. You're in the point one. Yeah. Now you're just now you're playing for impact. Uh, the money will come. The money will come. Look, I have friends who failed and failed and failed and failed. And then I have a friend recently who took a job. He finally gave up and he took a job and he's going to make $300 million in two years. Wow. Just because he got lucky. Eventually, the network played out. You are in the network. You're in the right town. You're, I don't know where you live, but, you know, <laughs> the network plays out, Lucas. You're, right? you're in the right digital town. You're right in the right digital town and everything's moving digital in the world and everyone in the world wants to be us because we're just sitting in the right spot. It's not that we did anything better than anyone. We're just lucky. We were attracted to this. We liked this. We met the right person at the right time who said something and now we're in our network. Go read that. Your life on network effects, right? That, that article I wrote last year, like that just tells the whole story. So I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't overthink it. Just, just keep being great at what you do and love it. And it'll show. And then the money will hit you. What's this guy going to do with $300 million? <laughs> what can you possibly do with $300 million? Like you can make a bigger Burning Man thing. Okay. <laughs> but, you know, he's going to do nothing. He can give it away. What, he's going to give it to his kids and fuck them up? <laughs> Ruin their lives? So, look, the, the, the lucky bus will hit you at some point. Stop worrying about that. It might hit you in your 50s. It doesn't really matter. No, th this is awesome. Thank you, James. There was this article about in New York Times. If you haven't seen it, James, I'll send it to you about the kids of capitalists turned socialist. Uh, it was it was it was funny. Um, J James, a few more things I want to ask you about. Uh, one is um, I'm going to ask you about anti-portfolio in a second. But two companies that I don't think you're invested in that I could have seen you being an investor in. One is Lunch Club, and yeah. the other is Golden. I'm Golden Wikipedia competitor for those who don't know, and Lunch Club, uh, the sort of you know. Tinder for networking, except, you know, evolved in a, in a post-COVID world. I'm curious if you looked at either of them for potential investment or what, what your perspective uh, was or is on, on either of those opportunities because they're, they're interesting. Yeah. yeah, I mean, look, look, those, those founders are great founders and those efforts are both good social efforts, community, user-generated content efforts. They're strong. Uh, I looked at both of them. Uh, they could both be like Pinterest. They could just be billion dollar companies in a few years. I have no idea. Right. So I, I don't have much insightful to say. It's like, you kind of take your bet, you take your guess. Um, but I could be as wrong as the next guy's right. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want, you know, if you want to want me to explain why I invested in a company, that's much more positive. I'm not yeah, let's, let's do that. I haven't invested in a company. <laughs> warmly because most uh, things don't work if someone says oh, i'm really smart because i didn't invest in them and it didn't work like tell them the fuck off like most things don't work totally let's talk about warmly max actually had to go a few minutes ago but he's, he's in this cohort i'm curious what you saw in, in besides max being great and the team being great uh what was sort of the market opportunity with warmly or, or the thesis behind behind that bet yeah i mean look customer success and sales is still shitty and you've got a co-founding team of four ex-googlers or whatever that are just sharp as hell and iterate quickly and have the ear of all their customers and they're going to find, figure it out. That's the, that's the thesis. It's just a great team and a big ass market. And they're thinking about things 
uh, really differently than most people are and good things come out of that. And that's, that was, that was the thesis there. Pretty simple. You know, a lot of people come to me with HR software. (sighs) You know, these people have no power. They have no budget. They have no cadence. They have no urgency. It's always a nice to have, not a need to have, you know, the only need to have is work day and the work day is work day. And so in HR, it's just really hard to build big companies in HR. There are some, but not many. Whereas in sales, sales and customer success, you should be able to build many, many four, eight, $12 billion companies. What about other enterprise buyers like, uh, you know, marketing tech or other sort of, you know, sub, sub enterprise uh, SaaS sectors? Yeah. Enterprise tech is, you know, third. It's, it's kind of, it works, but there's so many companies doing it that it's much, it's a much more thickly occupied space. There's something playful about a lot of marketing companies that makes them more attractive than the blood and guts of customer success and sales. So you just end up with a lot more competition there. But I would, I would say, you know, sales and customer success and then engineering uh, software and then, and then marketing and then HR. Have you done anything in the creator space uh, yet? Or how is your sort of your thesis evolving there? Yeah. I mean, look, so much of what we all do is in the creator space. If you think about it, uh, yeah, we're just doing one investment now that we haven't closed yet. That's in the creator space. The, the problem has been for the last 10 years, a lot of people have been building software for freelancers and that has proven challenging the creator space. Uh, you know, we, we invested in some companies that were doing videographers and some doing photographers and some doing event planners. And so we invested in a bunch of different companies like that. Again, somewhat challenging to to really build a big company until you build a horizontal platform. And so uh, we've looked at a ton and uh, gotten close to a lot because it, it's a big market. Things are changing fast. The way we work is changing. All those trends are, are spot on, but it's proven difficult to get too much of a network effect going in that space. And so we haven't been too disappointed with most of the passes. And I think some of the companies that have been successful, uh, we just never saw, you know, We've been around for three years. We didn't see them four years ago when they got going, and now they're they're big or whatever. But yeah, we, we like that space. Uh, but it, again, that those types of companies are are close to social media, right? I mean, those, right? It's the founders have to be very adept at language and community and emotion. It takes a very special founder to get one of those things going. It's not a spreadsheet business. Yeah, like me, go back to marketplaces for a second. How how, how do you differentiate between or how do you evaluate differently, you know, vertical versus versus horizontal, or what's your sort of framework there? I always want horizontals because the horizontals get bigger, and the verticals, you know, you really have to see how that vertical can then start to bleed into other verticals, and sometimes you can see it, and sometimes you can't. So I, I generally like horizontals. Yeah. When you're evalu- what's important to you when evaluating B two B marketplaces? The B two B marketplaces are a lot harder than B two C because the people in your marketplace are fighting you. Whereas the B2C marketplace, they're not fighting you. They just want the convenience and the selection. They're not fighting you for margin. They're not fighting you for financing terms. They're not bringing their bank to compete with their loan that you're attaching to the transaction. Now, your customers are much more savvy in B2B. And so that, that for 20 years has proven really difficult. We've been investing in the last three years again in, in B2B marketplace and we'll continue to do so. I think we actually think it's going to get hotter, but you've got to figure out a way where there's actually a win for somebody because mostly, most of these marketplaces say there are these transactions happening. Now we're going to digitize them. I don't generally think that that has worked in the last 20 years. What I've seen is there are transactions that are not happening because there isn't enough software being applied to the problem. If we applied software, could we create new transactions that weren't taking place at all before? Right. And that's typically uh, a good place to mentally start because now you're going to put people into business who weren't in the business before. So they're just happy to be there. They're just happy to be getting some revenue. So they're not going to start out fighting you. They're going to let you do your thing for three or four years and get up to liquidity before they start fighting. you, And that'll give you a a much better chance in many cases. The other thing we've seen is is that often moving into an area uh, where there's a lot of brokerages or brokers, and just doing the brokerage better with more software faster, you can start to take a lot of market share and get a lot of momentum. And then you can explore how much of this 
market can be replaced with software and how much needs to stay brokers. And in a lot of these things like insurance or in real estate transactions or in used manufacturing goods, or we just don't know how far the software and how quickly the software will eat into the whole industry so that you can then flip it into a marketplace away from the broker model. But that's kind of the big experiment going on with a number of companies right now. I mean, tens and tens of them actually. James, a quick follow-up on that. And you may have just answered it in that last part, but earlier, about a minute ago, you said you guys are really excited about B2B marketplaces and, and you think they're going to just keep getting hotter. Is that because of what you just mentioned as it relates to the software kind of eating into the brokerage model? Yeah, I think that is going on. And I just think that it's kind of stupid, but everyone who works at these B2B companies is on Facebook. They're on eBay. They're <laughs> And then they come to work and they're like, really? Really? And so now that everybody's gotten comfortable with those interfaces on the B2C side for the last five or six years, and now that the 70-year-old old owner has turned these things over to their 46-year-old son or daughter, you know, and she's sitting there saying, I'm not going to keep doing it like dad did. I'm going to do it the modern way. I at least want to be a modern firm. I want to use more software. So they're leaning into it emotionally as well as saying, I can actually grow more if I use this software. So I think they're looking for opportunities with software. And I think those that don't use the software will then be left behind. But before we couldn't get any of the gazelles to break out of the pack. The pack was all moving together. But now you're getting some younger folks who are starting to to break off and actually use the software. And they're going to get such advantage, hopefully, that everyone has to come along with them. And you're going to like a can opener in these industries. Now, the, the, the fundamental challenge about B2B is that most of the margin that exists in B2B, because most things in B2B are commodities, plastic tubing is plastic tubing, cement is cement. Because you can multi-source almost anything in B2B, the only margin that's left is in the relationship. I'm going to take care of you, Darla. You know, I always come in, uh, you know, I always come through for you, Darla. You know, when you had that squeeze around Christmas last year, I was there for you, Right. And that's where the margin comes. And so that's why, that's why B2B has so, been so resistant is because once you make it really transparent and you take away those relationships, all the margin goes away for most of the people. And so nobody wants the software even near them. They can smell the end of their company coming. And so everyone just turns a, a cold eye to it and drags their feet and then you run out of money, <laughs> right? Your venture capital dries up before you can actually get the liquidity. We saw that for a decade. Just a, just a couple more spaces, and then I'll uh, have uh, someone else ask a question. I'm curious how, how you think about um, the, sun, the sun has gone down, Eric. The, the, the sun set over the <laughs> over the bay. We, we got you for eight, eight more minutes, uh, James. Yeah. Healthcare and fitness. Uh, on fitness, you've invested in FitMob. I'm curious if you think an approach like that, or some a marketplace for uh, trainers, or approach like Future Fit, will work, or how you viewed the fitness space. If it, are you unlikely to make a bet there? And then consumer, you've done, I think, uh, is impossible or um, solve. I could, maybe it's not impossible. I forget what it's, what it's called. Something health. Um, how have you sort of Incredible approached Incredible health. That? Yes, yes. How, how have you approached the, those two spaces? So we are very unlikely to make a fitness marketplace bet. I would say that every week we see three business plans for fitness marketplace. And, in fact, it's so bad at this point that we want to actually build a website just for business ideas you shouldn't start. And that before you start a company, you should come to this website and look at all the categories you should not start a business in. And the number one one would be a fitness marketplace. It would be right at the top of the website. <laughs> because the uh, train is a churn or, you know, like, I don't know, there's a million reasons. The ESP is too low. The churn is too high. The CAC is too high. The number of competitors is too high. The number of substitutes is too high. It's like everything's wrong with that market. And I'm sure there's going to be a breakout and whatever. And then ah, James was wrong. I remember he said in 2020 that it would never work. And anyway, I guess it's more accurate to say we don't feel as if we can pick of the 1,600 entrants in 2020 to that market, which the winner is going to be. That's, I think, the fair, the fair way to say it. I'm sure there'll be a winner and it'll be glorious, but it won't be pickable uh, until it's already won. So those markets tend to be Series B investments. Like you wait until something wins and then you just stick 20 million at 140 and you get your six times return. That's a great series B investment. It's not, those types of markets aren't great seed investments, but James, it's different this time. That's what I get every time. It's different. 
Um, and then on the healthcare side, uh, you have to be very careful with healthcare, particularly around software. It's an industry like education that resists <clears throat> software for various reasons, many, many reasons. Uh, there have been almost as much money invested. There might be more money invested in healthcare software than was ever returned in the whole sector. Uh, it might be a net negative returning sector. I don't know. We'd have to, it'd be close. We'd have, if you take out Livongo, it's definitely a net, a net negative uh, sector. So you have to be pretty careful. And I think a company like Solve, which is doing basically mind body for emergency, for urgent care clinics, that makes sense. It's, you know, it's workflow software for these small businesses, basically, just like with MindBody. It can be a really good business, but it's not really healthcare per se. It's more about scheduling and checking on insurance and stuff like that. And then Incredible Health is a company that's helping to place nurses in hospitals. And that's just like, you know, any of these placement companies. It's just they've picked a vertical and they've had to figure out the, the nuances of the, of the healthcare vertical, but it doesn't touch insurance. It doesn't touch Medicare. It's, it's literally just, you've got a business, you need to hire someone, you pay us six grand every time we hire someone for you, you know, just like uh, so, so many other companies that are doing pretty well in that recruiting space. Um, among friends, uh, tell us what else would be on that, li- that website of business ideas we should <laughs> avoid pursuing or investing in, save us time, save us money. <laughs> Bar loyalty, like I'm going to do live performance ticketing, I'm going to do bands, I'm going to do uh, tr- international travel. I'm going to, you know, it's like all the things that are like fun. Like, right? so people have these, they're, they're 28, they're 34 and they have this fantasy <laughs> that they're going to build a billion dollar company while doing the thing they love. <laughs> you know, whereas the people who are making money are people like Max Lipschin was like, I'm going to do financing for all the stuff you buy at Walmart. Like, <laughs> boom, let's go public in four years, you know, or, I'm going to do financing for B2B marketplaces so that we, you know, do these are the types of businesses that get big, not, you know, (laughs) look, the time to do fun businesses that became billion dollar businesses. That was like 2000 to 2009. It's over now. Sorry. You missed it. (laughs) It it happened for like nine years. It's done now. I'm kidding, but. Yeah. No, I, I I pursued a music startup in 2012 for three years. So I I have the scars to, uh, to, Yeah. yeah. To prove it. Yeah, um, exactly. Sharos, want to close us, close us out? But my question is more tactical. You touched on this earlier, like, hey, there's only four of us, but we also see a ton of companies and we're in a lot of verticals. So like, what's the point at which you feel like, hey, I've seen enough in this space and I'm ready to go and make an investment? Or is it some other moment? But I'm curious, like, given your funnel is so wide, both on verticals and on the stage, how do you manage if you don't have more people? It's a great question. And I think, I think the answer is, you know, is not great. And I think the answer is we just try to use our best judgment. And since we've been building companies and investing for two decades, our judgment has just been honed more and more over time. We've made so many investments that didn't work out and we're close to the founders why they weren't working out. And we learned what the failure modes were. And then we made investments that did work out and we were close to the fund. We saw what the things were. And just after so many rinse, wash, and repeat type things, you, you just get a sense of it. So I, I don't know that there's anything more than that. Sometimes we, ha- we like the idea um, and we don't think the team is great. And then we justify it to ourselves saying, but markets win. And you can have a mediocre team in a great market is going to do better than a great team in a bad market. And a great team in a great market is when you get these outsized returns. And so uh, we're always trying to play that off because you rarely get a great team in a great market. Or you rarely know if it's a great market. You rarely know if it's a great team. You know, you, can, you just have to use your best judgment. And so I think that um, we play off a number of factors and we try to bring to our discussions, which take place mostly on Facebook Messenger um, and then and then partly on Monday meetings. We just bring a we don't pitch the partnership. We don't come to the partnership and say, I want to do this deal and I'm going to try to convince you of this, right? We don't have that culture. We, we say, here's an interesting company and I'm, I'm, I'm wrestling with it because I really like it for these reasons. I don't like it for these reasons. And, and then someone will say, oh, don't worry about that. that you know, that's not a con. That, you know. So I think 
you, you try to make better decisions by turning things over with your partners. And even if, even if you're an angel or a solo capitalist or whatever, find people who are like your BFFs, right? And, and just roll things around with them, people you trust. Because I think through the extroverting, through the talking, you, you, you tend to hone in on the right answer. You start to sense your own discomfort. You start to sense your own enthusiasm. And then ultimately, over time, you have to be honest with yourself if you're making the same mistake over and over again. Like one mistake that I made over and over again was investing in people I loved hanging out with. And in some cases, that like Manish Chandra with Poshmark or whatever, that, that ended up being just the right thing to do or Otis Chandler from Goodreads or whatever. But in many other cases, it really led me to just getting to zero real quick on that investment because I was reacting to my affinity to the person, not my affinity to their talent in this market and not my affinity to this market or to this approach. And so I wasn't using my my intellect enough. That's a great place to wrap. Uh, James, thank you so much for, for being generous with your time and uh, having a great uh, conversation with us. Uh, everybody give a round of applause for, for James for, for, for joining yeah. us today. Great to see you guys. Thank you for awesome. the time as well. Go get them. Go awesome. make the world a better place. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.